Glad you guys are here this morning. I want to just update you this week. I was in Detroit and uh, was there for a meeting. We're part of a, a network of local, uh, local churches here in our area uh, called Plant Ozarks. And that's part of a broader network called Plant Midwest. And that's a, a regional network that covers seven cities. And every year we work together for the equipping and learning, um, connecting and praying together with people who uh, desire to see the church grow, not just in a numerical sense in one building, but to expand across our uh, regions. And so uh, we've been part of that. We've got one more quarter this this year. It'll be on church multi- multiplication, which is near and dear to us as we seek to plant churches. Uh, but a guy from our local, uh, or, or from actually nine, is actually going to come in and talk about it. He's planted, he and his church have planted several hundred churches from what I understand. And so it's, uh, we'll be able to learn from him. Uh, but then next year, I just want to, I want to start talking about it now because I want it in your mind. Uh, the theme, and I didn't know this going into it, the theme is evangelism. And so it seems to me as if, uh, you know, where we've been the last couple of weeks talking about the word of God that works and the necessity to hear God's word, the responsibility we have to hear, to truly hear God's word, there, there is an inherent reality that we're called to go and tell God's word. And so it is, uh, it's something that seems as if the Lord's already kind of working and stirring in your pastors. I just want to encourage you next year to be listening out for dates for Plant Ozarks, and if you're available on those days, to plan to attend. But then also, I want you to be listening for a guy's name named Alvin Reed. Next year, I think it's around April uh, Life Point, our partnership with Life Point Church, they're going to be bringing Alvin Reed in, and he's he's a he's a um, he's just a voice to listen to when it comes to personal evangelism. And so, I would encourage you guys to plan to be a part of that and just be listening for it. Just go ahead and ma- make the mental note now uh, that when you begin to hear about it next year, you'll you'll be ready to go ahead and just prioritize being a part of that. It's a it's a necessary thing. It's a it's a great responsibility we've been given, and so <clears throat> I just I just want to talk to you about it. I want to continue to keep you up to date about ways we are networking together. It's not just churches here, but we are broadly connected. In fact, there's a strategic partnership. I think a, a strong partnership that we're going to be able to develop with a church in Detroit, and I look forward to sharing more with that with you about that later. But today we're going to be back in Luke chapter eight, uh, and I just want you to. Uh, I just want you to be kind of thinking, so Jesus has been teaching, and now what's going to happen is we've heard his teaching, we've heard his explanation of some parables, and now we're going to see him actually put them into practice and begin to live them out. We're going to hear his word proclaimed, and we're going to see the power that it actually bears out in the world around us, and we're going to get to see people's responses to that power. And the way that they are to that word, to that preaching. And, and one thing that Luke draws out, regular repeatedly through these four episodes that we're going to take three weeks to work through, he draws out this, this idea of fear. So we're going to see the disciples fear. Today as we study, we'll see them fear. We'll, we'll talk about uh, the people of the Gerasenes. They fear Christ. He's, he, he casts out demons and they fear him because of it. The, the woman who's ill, who has an issue of bleeding, she fears. And then Jairus, a leader in the synagogue, uh, is, uh, has gone to Jesus to see his daughter uh, healed because she's sick, but by the time Jesus is able to get to her, she's already dead. And, and Jairus has said, do not, or, or Jairus has told, do not fear. In these, in these responses, some are going to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. They're going to, <clears throat> they're going to uh, trust him more. They're going to know him better. And some are going to find it impossible to do anything but fear him and then as a result reject him. And today as, as we start this, I just want to start with a question. What do you fear? What are you afraid of? So last night I was at uh, Jake and Kara's house. There was a, a worship team dinner and I'm not on the worship team really. My wife is and, and so I got to be a part of that and so we were leaving, it was dark, and, we, and, and they live out in the boonies. And so you can imagine there's critters everywhere, and, and, and the reality is it wasn't just critters, there was this one in particular. We sat down in the car, and as I sat down, I, I passed through this thick, sticky spider web. And immediately, my fear just, whoa, oh my gosh, is it on me, you know? I'm like getting out my, my phone and turning on the flashlight and looking around. I, I don't like spiders. 
I just don't. What do you fear? What strikes fear in you? Now, when you, when you face it, what, what causes you to feel at your wit's end? What, what experiences in your life have you endured or, or, or what have you experienced that's made you feel like this is it, it's over, I can't make it past this point? And when you face those things, like what's the reaction? What, what do you do in light of it? And when you're faced with your fear, when you're faced with this struggle, this this difficulty, this trial, how do you respond? The truth is, I think this is extremely applicable to us because I don't think there's a person in this room that doesn't fear something. I don't think there's a person in this room that hasn't experienced difficulty. Let's put them in a place where they feel like they are at their end. The truth is, we live in a world that's filled with danger, right? I mean... It's always just out in front of us. Some of it we can manage. Like we can put on our seatbelts when we climb into a car. We can strap our kids into a car seat. But inherent in climbing into a machine and strapping it to our back that carries us at speeds that our bodies cannot absorb should we come to a rapid halt, there is inherent danger. Right? Oh, we manage it. We calculate risks. Versus reward. Some danger doesn't work that way. Some of the risk we face doesn't work that way. Some of that danger is created by us against one another. I mean, we live in a world that we actually create danger for each other. Turn on the news. Look through your Facebook feed. Terrorism. Racism. Domestic abuse, kidnapping. Just a, a few days ago, a, chi- a kid just a few miles away in the city of Republic, they attempted kidnapping. We do terrible things to one another that that cause risk for each other. And some of this danger, some of this danger is just the, the natural result of the sheer force of nature. And this kind of risk, this kind of danger, well, there's nothing we can really do about it, is there? An earthquake is, is so powerful that it causes solid ground to move like waves in the ocean. I've never seen it. I've heard testimonies of it. But I'm thinking, if I see the ground moving like waves in the ocean, I'm a bit afraid. I think that would make spiders look, I mean, a little bit bigger. Right? Right? The ocean, the, the, the force of flowing water, I should say, the, it, it's astounding. The Weather Channel did a, did a study, and, and they report that water flowing at seven miles per hour has the equivalent force per unit as air blowing at E5 tornado speeds. So a cubic, a cubic foot of water moving at seven miles an hour is relative to an E5, a quarter or a cubic foot of air moving at E5 tornado speeds. I don't know how fast that is. I didn't look it up. You're welcome to go do that. But I think it's pretty fast. They go on. Water flowing at seven miles per hour. You think about that. That, doesn't move, that does not sound that fast. When I was a kid, I thought I could run at least seven miles an hour. I thought I could run about 20 you know, probably couldn't. Then they go on. Water flowing at 25 miles per hour has the prefer- pressure equivalent of wind blowing at 790 miles per hour, faster than the speed of sound. That's power. I think there's a reason why they tell us not to cross flooded roads when the water's moving. That's a lot of force. That's a lot of power. Even the wind can be deadly. I've already made reference to the power of of tornadoes. Based on a report I saw, there's an average of about 1,200 tornadoes a year. 1,200 tornadoes a year in the United States alone. And they kill, on the average, of about 60 people per year, injure about 1,500, and cost about $400 million in damages. That's wind. You know that breeze that feels good on a hot summer's day? It can be very destructive. I mean, here's the thing about this kind, of, this, this kind of danger, this kind of power. 
There's nothing we can do against it. We can't stop it. We can't slow it down. We can't impede it. We can't overcome it. When the storm blows, all we can do is be subject to it. What are you afraid of? What makes you fear? And what do you do in the face of that fear? Well, this is the kind of danger that the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, his closest followers, found themselves faced with as they had heard his teaching, as they sought to follow him, as they walked closely with him, as they did the very thing he told them to do. They were confronted with this kind of danger. In fact, let's just read it. And I, and I believe you'll see that there's purpose in it. Verses 22, uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 22. Uh, if, if you have never followed along with the Version Live app and you have a smartphone, I would encourage you today is a day. I, there's verses I want you to have. If you're not going to follow along with that app, then you need to write them down. You need to go look them up and you need to just rest in the, in the power and the provision that we find in God's word. So I would just encourage you. The verses will be on the screen, but, but I would encourage you. Get these passages of Scripture. We're going to, there's going to be a bunch of them we're going to walk through. And they are, they are powerful. So we're beginning verse 22, chapter 8. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, there's, just so you know, this is something that was apparently commonplace on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake, lake Genesaret or however you want to say it, whatever name you want to apply to it. This is something that's supposed to be common because of the, because of the elevation changes in the cold air from uh, the mountains meeting the warm air of the, of the sea. This was something that happened Regularly, these people were not immune to storms. They knew that storms happened, and sometimes they would just come out of nowhere. And so it's, it's not uncommon that something like this would happen. But we see that this is a horrific storm. This is a scary storm. A windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger, like the boat's about to sink. And they noticed that. They say, and they went and woke him Saying, they went and woke Jesus saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Like these guys understand in this moment that this is the end. And in their mind, the next step is that they're in the ocean, overwhelmed by the waves and drowning, probably sinking to the bottom, never to be seen again. We are dying. This is where they're at. You feel the tension? Have you ever, have you ever experienced this moment where, where circumstances are such that they overwhelm you, that you just feel like this is the end? That's where they are. And he awoke. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. Can we just stop and think about that for a second? He spoke to them. And they obeyed. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. It was funny to me, it's striking to me as we read this. We're going to talk about this more in a second. I want to call it out right now. We don't hear them being afraid. We see them being afraid as they're facing danger. But when does the narrator, when does Luke tell us that they feared? After it's calm. After he has settled the seas. After the wind has quit blowing. And they were afraid. And they marveled. Saying to one another, who then is this that, command, that he commands? Even winds and water. And they obey him. Here's the thing, is that somewhere in, along the way, somewhere in our thinking, somewhere in the way that we have come to believe, we have allowed the idea of a prosperity gospel, even if it's not full-blown, the idea of a prosperity gospel to take root in our hearts. And I know that because I know that when people struggle, they think Jesus must be sleeping. They think they must have done something wrong. They think they must not be believing enough. They think that in some way God has forgotten them or doesn't care about them. 
You see, the prosperity gospel would tell us that, hey, if you just believe enough, if you do the right things, give enough money, that all things for you, it's just going to be good now. It's just gonna, you're going to have comfort. You're going to have health. You're going to have wealth. Your life is going to prosper. But what happens? What happens when the storm rages? What happens when you're following Jesus, when you're doing what he said, when he says to get in a boat and you climb in the boat? When you get into the middle of the sea and you're totally at the, you're totally at the mercy of God. The God who commands the seas. And the storm hits. But what happens to the prosperity gospel when that occurs? What happens to the idea that God loves me when that occurs? What happens to the idea that I am an object, I'm a recipient, I'm a beneficiary of God's grace? What happens to our theology when we think that if we just do all the right things, we can please God and get good from God? When all we're doing leads us to a place where we face something that seemingly will destroy us. You see, I think the point of this story, I think what we'll see is that maybe we've gotten it wrong. Maybe we view the difficulties and the trials and the suffering in this life from the wrong perspective. Maybe God's grace isn't simply measured by the good and easy and pleasing things that happen. Maybe his grace is just as evident in the ways he makes difficult things work to our good. You see, so I don't know what makes you afraid, and I don't know what storms you face today. But my hope, my prayer for you today is that we, as, as we walk through this passage, as we look at this passage, as we think about coming to the other side of this passage, that you will be able to do just like the disciples that were able to do. No. Jesus more fully. Walk with him more intimately and trust him more completely. See, I, I think the reality is, is that that's the very purpose for which these storms come. But when these guys came to the other side of the storm, they faced it, they, they were in the midst of it, and they are freaking out. We are perishing. Imagine the, imagine the scene of water filling their boat. They're probably as fast as they can trying to, trying to bail the water as fast as they can tying the sails back of the boat so that they're not carried all over the place by the raging wind. Sails pulling them about, tearing in their hands. It's, I, I, just imagine the frantic nature or the frantic response. And they go to Jesus and wake him. And when he wakes them up, or when they wake him up, and he calms the sea and he tells the wind to be still, he doesn't turn and tell them, oh, thanks for waking me up. Like, Where's your faith? Where's your faith? You see, I think the reality is, is that in this moment, Jesus loved them enough he cared enough about them that he didn't just appease them, but he, but he taught them. He instructed them, and he, and he revealed himself to them. He put them in a place where they were beyond themselves, in a place where they had not experienced before, in a place where they couldn't help but see him in a new light through new lenses. And they were faced with their unbelief or the weakness of their own belief in him. And the strength of their belief in so many other things. I appreciate what one preacher pointed out as he talked about this. I, actually, I heard several pointed out, and I don't know who was original, so, so uh, I, don't, I don't know who to, you can just say, think I came up with this. He says, the storm did not disturb the master, but the unbelief of his disciples did. It wasn't that he said, you are without faith, but he said, where is your faith? The, the, the problem was is they were living out of fear. They were motivated, controlled by, consumed with this idea that they had to preserve themselves, that they had to work in their own power, 
And when they went to Jesus, I don't know what was necessarily in their mind. And maybe they were just waking him up so that he could be a witness to their death. You know, like, hey, we don't want you to miss out. We're about to die. So if that ever happens to us, you just let me sleep. I don't want to know. I'm fine sleeping right through it. I don't think that's probably why they did it. I think in some way they had a measure of faith. But they weren't, they, they weren't saved by the strength of their weak faith. They were, they, they were saved by the strength of the one their weak faith was placed in. But by the end of the day, they would trust him a whole lot more. You see, the reality is, is that here's Jesus, and he stands up, and they see him do this work. To this point, you think about what they'd experienced. To this point, they had seen him work miraculous things. They had seen him do powerful things. They'd seen the deaf hear. They'd seen the blind see. They'd seen the lame get up and walk. They'd seen the leper healed. They saw the, the skin go from being covered with lesions to being clear. They'd seen the dead rise. But to this point, they had simply witnessed his power as spectators. And what they knew of God and what they knew of Jesus was, was still some external experience. To this point, other than seeing a miraculous catch of fish, they hadn't truly experienced the power of their Savior. They hadn't been the true beneficiary of his powerful, miraculous but in this moment, they found themselves at their wit's end. They found themselves without hope. They found themselves facing death. They were afraid. Let me ask you something. What are you afraid of? What do you fear? What storm is raging around you right now? What you believe is going to undo you. What are you going to do? Where are you going to turn? With your weak faith, what are you going to focus on? What are you going to hope in? What are you going to turn to? We so, we so often approach these storms of life as if they're punishment. We associate God's grace. When we talk about experiencing his grace, we, we talk about being able to, well, the good things, you know, like I got a raise and my kids are on the, on the, on the uh, I don't know, they're getting good grades. My, they're not causing me trouble. My job is going well. What if, what if in the midst of our storm, we flipped it on its head and quit thinking that this is in some way because God's grace has quit working for us. But we trusted him enough and quit believing in the lies that presented by the storm. We trusted him enough to see his grace take that storm and do something amazing, do something powerful through us, for us, to us. Kent Hughes, in Preaching the Word, it's a commentary series, writes this, Storms are part of the process of spiritual growth. Some experienced believers believe that every spiritual truth, everything that has, I'm sorry, some experienced believers believe that every spiritual truth, everything that has enhanced their existence has come through affliction. And he goes on and he affirms that point by a poem, an anonymous poem that he shares. He's, it goes, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I didn't know we were going to sing this song. In the first service, they, they didn't get to make this connection. Hopefully, the Spirit did it for them. But 
We're going to close out our service today and we're going to sing oceans and we're going to stand in this place where we sing these words to God about leading us to a place where our trust has no boundaries, where, where, where we will walk wherever he leads us. Don't think he's not leading you into a storm. Don't assume that he doesn't love you because it gets difficult. Don't assume because the waves swelling around you, leading you to a place where you think it's the end, where you might be at despair. It just might be. No, I think it is. He loves you enough to not leave you to yourself, but show you your weakness, show you your need, show you that he is trustworthy, show you that he is able, show you that he is willing so that you can walk with him more intimately, know him more fully, and trust him more completely. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this story from Mark's gospel, states, by affliction he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we should never learn. By affliction he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. Isn't that good? Isn't that something that's worthwhile in us? Isn't that something of his grace at work in our lives? He goes on, in the resurrection morning, in the resurrection morning, that moment we stand in his presence, in the resurrection morning, we all shall say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not there today. <laughs> right? It's not like I wake up and just thank God I'm going to have a difficult day. I don't lay my head down and say, thank you, God. I had a terrible day. But I'm confident when we stand together on the morning of the resurrection, we stand in his presence when answers are given and we're able to see the things that he can see. We will be thankful that he did not just simply give us sunshine, but that he also led us into storms. If not for the storms in this life, we'd simply be arrogant, self-depending, ignorant people. But through our afflictions, he grows us. And that's exactly what he's doing in the lives of these disciples. They bring awareness of our deepest needs. They show us how definitely how dependent we are, how needy we are, how weak we are. The storms that we experience following Jesus, they are not destructive, they are instructive. The storms that, that we meet while following Jesus, they may hurt, but they will not ultimately harm. They are redemptive as they lead us and restore us. They, they bring us and shape us more fully into the likeness of Christ. They let us know him more completely. Imagine what you wouldn't know about your Savior had you never met a struggle. Imagine what you wouldn't be able to experience or claim testimony of had he not brought you to a place where you couldn't depend on yourself any further. Imagine what you wouldn't be able to know or how you wouldn't be able to thank him for doing his work if he hadn't brought you to a place where only he could provide. You see, I think we face these struggles from the wrong perspective. They're a measure of his grace. Not as punishment. Not as, not as disappointment. But in answer to the question, where is your faith, that we might say, it is growing. I am growing. I am learning more and more to trust you. And when we come to the other side, like those disciples came to the other side, we'll recognize the reward will not be the wealth and health and prosperity that this world might tease us with. The calm seas themselves are not the reward. But recognizing more fully who Jesus is, being more amazed about 
this man who put on flesh, this God who put on flesh to dwell as a man among us, that we might fear and we might marvel and we might trust. And see, the truth is, I think this is what Jesus uses the storms in our life for. And so I think we draw three conclusions. In fact, I want to draw three conclusions that I think will help you today. I hope really through any storm you face. First, Jesus, the man that slept through the storm, is the God who by his word commands all of creation to accomplish his will. There's this beautiful thing happening in this, in this story, this beautiful thing that we get to see. We get to see the contrast of, of Jesus' two natures, his humanity and his divinity. On the one hand, Jesus is exhausted and he is tired. I mean, I sleep heavy. Amy would say I might sleep through a tornado or something like that. I think, I think that if I'm in the middle of a boat and it's tossing all over the place and it's filling with water, I think I'm going to wake up. Jesus is sleeping. And every, every commentator I read points to the fact that he's been teaching. If you go into the context of the story, he's been teaching and at length. He's been surrounded by people. And so this moment in the sea was a moment for him to rest. Yes, he's headed to some place to do a work. He's got a divine appointment to make. And yes, in the middle of the sea, he is going to, to, to lead his disciples through a storm. But he is tired. He lays his head down and he takes a nap. And he falls into a deep sleep. But on the other hand, when he stands and speaks and calls the wind to stop and the waves to, to be still, they obey. Jesus is already known for doing things that only God does. In fact, just a few passages ago, we saw Jesus forgive sins and everybody was like, who is this that even forgives sins? And we were able to see that that was a mark of his divinity, that having been, having uh, the identity of God, he had been sinned against as God and then had, thereby had the authority to forgive like God. Here, we see that he commands the creation. And it obeys, it does what he says. This is, this is something that the scripture applies to God alone. Psalm, uh, Psalms 89, 8 through 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as, as you are. O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves arise, you still them. It's almost as if they knew this moment was going to happen. Psalm 107 Verses 23 through 29. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. You'd almost think that the psalmist is describing this moment of these disciples who had followed Jesus into a boat and onto the sea. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. You see, these disciples had already been experiencing Christ. They had already been seeing Jesus do things that only God would do. And this is one more piece of that puzzle. They know God. They know Jesus more fully. They have a greater sense of his divinity. They are experiencing his, his humanity. And at the same time, seeing his divinity. He's not just a mere man. He is God in flesh. And, and the beauty of this is that he is the God who then climbed into the boat with this. With them and with us, who doesn't just sit silently by in the midst of a storm, but answers our cry and our distress. He is the God who desires to serve us. 
He is the God who is for us. In fact, we just sang a song just a few minutes ago. Never thought of it this way. Uh, had always thought of us. Uh, Jesus is, is the only one for me. And I had always thought of that verse or that line in the song as, as our view of, of Christ. Like, he's the only one for me. There's nobody else I want. And I wish that were true. And I pray that that would be true. Every time we sing that song, I pray that it would be true. But what I know is true is that he is the only one that's truly for me. The only one that's truly for you. This God who put on flesh stepped into our boat and he doesn't just bring us to a storm. He brings us through the storm. So he is Jesus the man who sleeps in the storm or slept through the storm is the God who by his word commands all of creation to accomplish his will. That is who Jesus is. Jesus, the man who calms the storm, is the God who should be feared and can be trusted. And I pointed out earlier at the end of the storm, the, the seas have gone silent. They are still, I would just imagine that there's not even, uh, not even a, a warble in them. And here he's his disciples sitting in this boat, and they are afraid. And it's hard for us to deal with this idea of fearing God, of fearing Christ, because we view him through this lens, purely through this lens of, of, of his grace. And, and it's, it's a good thing for us to do. It's a good thing for us to consider. But Christ is to be feared in the same way that God is to be feared. And this is not a negative statement. It's not a negative, uh, 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 it's not a reproach against God. We fear Christ because he is God. This is the way the scriptures call us to first approach him. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We don't even get to wisdom if we don't approach God in fear. I'm approaching God so boldly and, and arrogantly as if he's just some servant sitting in the sky waiting for us to call on him is like picking up a circular saw and running across your hand because you don't understand the power and the danger that is there. He is fearsome. He is powerful. And even the wind and the waves that cause us fear, the tornadoes that might knock a house down, they would answer to him. He would overpower them. He would overcome them where they would crush us. See, the reality is, is it's like the bully at school. When the bully at school, we had this guy, he was known, and, and the rumor was that he couldn't feel pain. So like when he hits you, he could hit you with full force. You know, you know how rumors go. Like he one time just beat a locker to the point that the door was just barely hanging on the hinges. I think the guy was probably just crazy enough to, to do stupid stuff like that. But, but everybody was afraid of him until we met somebody that could take him. Now, we weren't stupid. I'm not about to say that we shouldn't be hiding from storms. And like when the tornado sirens go off, please go get in your cellars, go to your hallway, get your mattress, climb in your tub, whatever you need to do, wherever you're going to go, duck and cover, okay? But don't fear the storm more than you fear the Lord. His power makes the storm look like the schoolyard bully. That guy can't really do much. He can really only do what the one more powerful allows him to do. We fear him not because, not, not simply because of his power, but because of who he is. This fear is a, is a, is a, is a, is a way we respect him. Luke 1.50, Mary is, is singing and excited about the, about the news that she is carrying the Son of God. And as she's singing, she says, his mercy, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Like mercy comes as we recognize that he is fearsome. Mercy comes as we look at him in fear and we find, we find his grace and his love and his provision. We find his son come not to crush us with the storm, but to deliver us through the storm, to shape us by the storm. 
And we, we fear him because he's God. And we trust him because he exercises power to do good to us and not harm us. James, writing after coming to faith in Christ, James is writing and he, he says, count it all joy, my brothers. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 4 of James' letter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. These trials, these storms, these dangers we face, they are nothing but God shaping us and molding us and carving away the old man from us and, and bringing us in the, the purity out of us. They are nothing but God's good for us. They may hurt, but they will not harm. Don't hear me saying they aren't difficult. These disciples were scared. I mean, they were freaking out. But at the end, they would know Jesus more fully, walk with him more intimately, trust him more completely. And so we trust him because he does not abandon us. One of the, to me, one of the most precious moments in this passage is before the storm even gets going. Jesus doesn't say, hey, get in the boat and go to the other side. Let us go across. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. He was there. He doesn't abandon us. Sometimes we think, oh, he must be sleeping. He must not be seeing. Why is he letting me endure this? You can be certain he is always with us. The promise is, and he said this at, his, at, at the point where he's leaving his disciples and he's commissioning them to go. He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The storms will rage but we can trust him because he is always there. We can trust him because his power is used for our good and not our harm. We may fear him, and that's actually a good thing, but we can trust him. David Gooding writes in his commentary, we live in a universe that is lethally hostile to human life. Within our, within our earth itself, Wind, wave, lightning, storm, flood, drought, avalanche, earthquake, fire, heat, cold, germ, virus, epidemic, all from time to time threaten and, to threaten and destroy life. Sooner or later, one of them may destroy us. The story of the stilling of the storm is not, of course, meant to tell us that Christ will never allow any believer to perish by drowning or by any other natural disaster. Many believers have so perished it does demonstrate that he is the Lord of the physical forces in the universe, that for him nothing happens by accident, and that no force in all creation can destroy his plan for our eternal salvation or separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us. He is always with us. He stepped into our existence. He knows our pain. He knows our struggle. And he walks within us or beside us. We are never alone. Jesus should be feared more than anything else. But he can be trusted more than everything else. And when we fear something else more, just consider this for just a moment. When we fear the storms of life, when we are like these disciples running and bailing and thinking that we are going to, to, to somehow make a difference, who are we trusting? What are we trusting? Who do we count on in those moments? I'm a doer, I'm a fixer. I was trained that way when I was. When I was coming up through the military, they trained us in troubleshooting problems and seeking the, the root cause of a problem. 
as we learned to work on aircraft. And, and that became a specialty of mine as I, as I continued to, to advance in, in that career. It became something I was known for. In fact, I was called many times to come and help troubleshoot something because they couldn't find the problem. And I always appreciated being able to be the guy that could find the problem and tell them how to fix it. The problem with that is I became very self-reliant. I began to depend on myself so much that, hey, I, I don't need him that much. Like, I, I'll need him there when I die so that I can go to heaven. I'll, I'll need him there when it gets really difficult, but, but most days of the week, you know, I, I get by pretty good on my own. But what that did in me was I found that in those days that the storms would rage, rather than immediately go to my Savior and say, you got this. Whatever comes, comes. I trust in you. I would seek in my own power and in my own way to fix my own problem. See, when we fear things more than we fear Christ, it means we trust in something more than we trust in Christ. And so long as we don't fear him most, we can't trust him most. Because as long as there's something greater than him to fear, there will always be something that's threatening our position in him. So we must fear him so that we can trust him. And in the storms, we learn to trust him. Third, Jesus, the man who rebukes the storm, is the God who deserves our worship. At the end of this day, they were a whole lot closer to Jesus. And because they were, they marveled. They weren't just afraid. Yeah, they were afraid, but they weren't just afraid. They marveled. They were in awe. They were astonished. Who is this that even commands the wind and the waves? Who is this? And they marveled at his power and they were astonished by it. Well, what if we're so busy? I, I don't know if this is true, but what if we're so busy trying to out, get out of a storm that we're missing the ability to marvel at Jesus' power in the midst of the storm? What if we're so busy running after our own ways and our own methods and leaning on our own power and our, our own wisdom? What if we're so busy trying to end the storm or get out of the storm that we're missing on the grace of God through the storm? What if he has you in the storm that you're facing today, not because he wants to crush you, but because he wants you to see his worthy of worship? What if he is raining on you and storming on you so that you might see his glory and marvel? You see, brothers and sisters, I think that's why the storm comes. So that as we trust him, we can see him. So that as we trust him and fear him, we can experience him. So that as the rains come pouring down and the wind comes blowing across, that we'll quit trusting ourselves, quit worshiping our existence here in this life and just long for him. One of the most beautiful, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm chapter 97. And it shows this, this contrast. Because of its power, because of his might, because of his ability to bring destruction and his ability to withhold destruction, we're called to worship. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up all of his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. I don't know if you're a mountain person or a beach person. You know, it seems like that you're either, either one or the other. I'm a mountain person. The closest I've been to real mountains, I mean, these are real mountains, like the Rockies, right? So the first time I was in them, this is just astonishing. The bigness, this, the, the, the majesty 
the hand that formed those must be powerful. And the psalmist writes, the heavens, or I'm sorry, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. You see, when we fear other things, when we pursue other things, when we trust other things, Be careful. The worshipers of images, those who make their boast in worthless idols, will be put to shame. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Listen, brothers and sisters, we trust him. We can follow him. We can walk intimately with him. Not simply because the storms come, but because he carries us to the other side of them. He preserves our way. He makes us able to go across. He brings us to the other side. Light is sown for the righteous and and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord. This is a call to worship. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. What do you fear? What brings you to a place in which you feel like you have lost control? What storm has raged that's removed the illusion of your control? Rejoice. Rejoice at the power of God's work in your life. He brings you to storms so that he can bring you through storms. So that you can then know him more fully, walk with him more intimately, trust him more completely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not abandoning us, for never leaving us, forsaking us, for not allowing anything to separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I do ask that you would grow us, that you would shape us, that you would mold us, that you would draw us closer unto yourself. And I know that as I ask that, that you may well do that through bringing us to the brink of despair. May we take heart as we face the storms in this life that you are with us, that you are able, and you do work your power for our good. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.